This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Carlson, Carlson, världens bästa Carlson. Carlson, Carlson, hoj här kommer Carlson. Carlson, Carlson, ingen faktiskt, ingen annan Carlson. Carlson, jag så bra som mig. Carlson, Carlson, Carlson scores! Carlson, yeah! Carlson, yes! Thank you everyone for tuning into another episode of the Keeping Carlson Fantasy Hockey Podcast. The best fantasy hockey podcast in the world, hosted by two guys on Eric Carlson in their keeper pools. I'm your host, Elon Dubrovsky, and with me as always, Brian Com. Hello, Elon. Hello, listeners. Do I get to say thanks first this time? Thank you, everybody, for tuning in once again to another fantastic episode, or what proves to be a fantastic episode. I've got a whole list of players I'm ready to talk about. It might be a bit of a lengthy lightning round this time around, but that's just the kind of week it's been. Yeah, we'll get there. And Brian, I did say thank you, so you did repeat it once again. But okay, we'll work on that. We've got too much to talk about to get hung up on that kind of thing. Let's mention we are presented by DauberHockey.com, the best site for fantasy hockey information. You go there for your articles, your line combos, your starting goalies. And of course, player profile pages. Like a lot of us go to a few different websites to pick this piece of information from here and this one from there. And it takes a few clicks and a few different places to go. Dauber Hockey has them all on one page. Pretty much everything you're going to need to know about this player with additional analysis from DauberHockey.com writers on that specific player. So, for example, right now I'm on Pavel Datsuk's page and I see the most recent times that he's been mentioned in the Daily Ramblings. I see his PDO. I see his shooting percentage. I see his zone starts, his cap hits for leagues where that matters. I see his game log his line mates, his stats for the last five years, his power play line mates, pretty much everything you want to know about what is happening with a player and their team, you can find out on the Dauber Hockey Frozen Pool player pages. If you just go to DauberHockey.com, mouse over the line combos tab at the top and then down to player profiles, you will be on your way. But I do want to remind everybody, like he has the PDO number up there and personally, I'd be much more interested in the five on five on a shooting percentage number. The PDO number is not going to tell you a whole lot unless you're concerned that a player is being unfairly blamed for their goalie's poor play. Yeah, an amazing tool on an amazing site. Definitely check it out. Player profiles at DauberHockey.com. Brian, let's get started with the first fantasy hockey headline of the week. And this week, we're going to have to talk about outjuries. Hooray! Last week, we started the week with injuries, if you'll remember, and talking about Connor McDavid. And when we're over that right now, okay, let's talk about some players coming back into our lineups that we're excited to welcome in. And we have to start with Pavel Datsyuk. On the Detroit Red Wings, those of you who drafted him pretty early in their drafts, you know, we even suggested in the preseason, you know, draft Datsyuk, you'll put him in your IR, you'll be hurt for maybe a couple of matchups, turned out to be like five matchups, but then you'll get him back for the rest of the season and hopefully the fantasy playoffs where he'll make it all worth it. So far, he's been back for two games, 
No points. No points so far. A bit disappointing of a start, especially for me. I had Calvin DeHaan in my lineup in the Keeping Carlson Ultimate Patron Fantasy League, and I dropped him to make room for Datsyuk on Friday. DeHaan got an assist in like four blocks, and Datsyuk did nothing. Well, he got four shots, actually. I shouldn't be too hard on him. Yeah, four shots is pretty good, but then he followed that up with just a single shot on goal. So really... You should have kept Dahan in your lineup over Datsuk. Is that what we're saying? <laughs> Seems like it. Maybe I would have had a chance at that blocks category. But we're not talking about Calvin Dahan. We're talking about Pavel Datsuk. And the thing that really surprises me, and I'm not going to say concerns me. I'll let you confirm if, if we should be using that word. But last game, yesterday on Saturday, Datsuk was playing not with Zetterberg and Abdulkader, like I expected him to be. But he was playing with Darren Helm and Thomas Tatar. And also he wasn't on the top power play. So, Brian, I'm, I'm a little bit curious about what's going on with Datsyuk. Are they still trying to figure out how to deploy him? Have they been happy with him overall? Like, should us Datsyuk fans be happy? And then, of course, also we need to get into how this affects the rest of the lineup. So go ahead, Brian. What do you think about Pavel Datsyuk? I think consensus has been that he's re-entered the lineup as well as anybody could have hoped. And yeah, he did start off in his first game playing with Zetterberg and Abdelkader. And last game, he found himself with Tatar and Helm. And that was, I'm not sure. I feel like the reason for that was to keep Dylan Larkin in a more active role, maybe a bit of a spreading out of the offense sort of situation. Although the Red Wings lines have been in somewhat of a blender for most of the season. And I still think that Datsuk, you know, whatever line he's on is still line one. Even if the second line is Larkin, Zetterberg, Abdelkader, I'll take Datsuk and Tatar as being line one, even though Helm sort of makes that a little more difficult to classify. Gustav Nyquist, it should be mentioned, with Datsuk back, he was playing with Joachim Anderson and Andreas Athanasiu. So that doesn't really bode so well for him. We're still waiting for the dust to settle from Datsuk's return. Like I said, the bottom six in Detroit has just been shuffled all year long. I think one of the most relevant pieces of information for anybody on Daxu's return is not just that he's back, but Larkin owners, I think, have reason to be concerned and need to be mindful of the impact that Datsuk is going to have on the rest of the lineup. Larkin has still been doing okay, but he's definitely slowed down just a point in his last four games, four points in his last 10 games played, and he is down to maybe like a 50-point pace with 11 points in 17 games played. So with another centerman, you know, natural, true centerman competing with him for ice time, I wonder exactly what he's going to be able to do. In four of his last five games, he has managed one shot or less. And that was even before Datsu came back as well. There is good news, though, for every single winger on Detroit. And, of course, Nyquist can play that role. And Tatar does play that role. And I wonder what Timu Polkinen is going to be able to do, where he's going to slot into the lineup now that the Red Wings are completely healthy, or at least they will be once Polkinen is healthy himself. Yeah, Polkinen's day-to-day with a undisclosed injury, so we'll see what's the status with him maybe later today or tomorrow. And he's been doing okay, right? Eight points in 16 games. Also, for what it's worth, Justin Abdelkader finally got back on the board yesterday after a long stretch of doing nothing. He had a power play goal yesterday. Not with Pavel Datsyuk on the ice, but I'm interested still to see what happens with him. I know that we were saying last week how maybe he might be a bit of a snoozer. He was in the news this week. He signed a brand new contract with the Red Wings. A lot of people were very critical of him getting such a long-term deal. But hey, at the end of the day, he's still on the top line of the top power play. So I can't imagine he has no value. Maybe he's not going to be the 60, 70 point player that some people were projecting him to be after his amazing start to the year, but still could be a 50 point guy. I don't think that's out of the realm of possibility. I feel like we've had this conversation already. I feel like 50 points is probably his ceiling. I would probably slot him in for closer to 45. Remember, we talked about all those opportunities he had last year, 
and he still finished the year with just 44 points. Now the Red Wings are a little more invested in him now than they were before, so maybe that means he gets to stick in that top six instead of being relegated to a bottom six role player where I think he might fare well. He just won't put up points. But I am not any higher on Abdelkader now than I was one week or two weeks or three weeks or even one year ago. I will point out, though, when you say his 44 points, that was in 71 games. So he was on like a 50-point pace if he would have played the whole season. But okay, let's just round this out, getting back to Datsyuk. What do you think his potential is for this season? He last year was over a point-per-game player. He was obviously injured for quite a little bit. But when he was on the ice, point-per-game player, there weren't that many of those last year. So he was one of the few elite this year he comes in, obviously not the best start, like we already said, but still he's Pavel Datsyuk. Do you think he's going to be that point-per-game player again this year? I think he can still hover around it. I don't think anybody needs to be terribly worried about him aging or playing hurt. I imagine that he made sure he was ready to go. He could still miss a few games throughout the year, maybe maintenance day. He is getting to that age and, again, coming off an injury. But I still have faith that he can be within spitting distance of a point per game over the rest of the games that he plays this season. Okay, and another major outjury that happened, not as major as Datsyuk, who was out for the whole season, but Duncan Keith finally returned, played 27 minutes yesterday for the Blackhawks against the Blues, got an assist. You know, just basically a standard Duncan Keith awesome game. I imagine the big impact here is, of course, if you have Duncan Keith, you're going to put him back into your lineup and drop whoever's your worst defenseman or forward. But also, if you have Brent Seabrook and you've been enjoying his surge of production with Keith gone... Now you might have to start expecting that to dwindle. Yeah, if you're in a league where nobody follows the Blackhawks and you own Seabrook, try and sell high on him. Uh, He's going to go back to who he was before, which was about a 35, 40-point guy, not a ton of power play time. Keith is going to step right back into the role that he left for Seabrook when he got injured, and everything is essentially going to go back to normal in terms of production from the blue line in Chicago. Well, Brian, for what it's worth, Seabrook did play on the top power play with Duncan Keith in the last game. It was Kane, Anisimov, Panarin, and then Keith and Seabrook, which is actually an interesting set of forwards for the top power play. But maybe they have seen enough from Seabrook in Keith's absence to convince them to give Seabrook more offensive opportunities. Is that possible? Yeah, I suppose that's possible. But I think that configuration worked for Chicago with four forwards and one defenseman. I don't feel like the same production is going to be available if they do switch it up and have two defensemen on the back end. So maybe for a game or two, sure, but I don't expect that to last. And if it does, um, sure, expect a couple more points from Seabrook, but not to say that he and Keith can both sustain the production we have seen from Seabrook recently. Yeah, if anything, what I've just said is a nice argument you could make to the person you're trying to sell high on Seabrook to. You could go like, hey, Keith's back. I know now you think that Seabrook's not going to be good, but actually he's still on the top power place. Maybe he will be just as good and he will continue to get almost a point every single game. Which, by the way, we should give him credit. Like, Brent Seabrook, he now has 12 points in 17 games on the year. But if you look at his last 10 games, he had seven points. And actually in his last two games, he had no points. So before that, he was on a seven points in seven game streak, which is pretty crazy. Yeah, maybe a touch on the crazy side, seeing as Keith never really put up that sort of production himself, although, you know, for little streaks at a time, he can. Seabrook, we've never really seen that much before. It was refreshing to see from him. A great bonus for his owners. A crazy bonus for his owners, if you will. Okay, and I guess since we're talking about the Blackhawks, we might as well mention some of their roster updates, including Marco Dano, who we talked about before as being called up, but he wasn't getting much ice time. The big news that came out yesterday was that they were going to give him a spin on the top line with Hosa and Taves. And also that meant that they were going back with that classic configuration of Panarin, Anisimov, and Patrick Kane. 
Good news and bad news, I guess, for Dano yesterday, right? Yeah, the good news is that he did get to take a turn on the top line. The bad news was that, like, it was essentially a turn on the top line, like a single turn. He played five minutes last night, but he still picked up an assist, which is great. And, like, I'm starting to wonder, did he do something to make somebody angry in training camp when he was brought over? Did he, like, come with the swagger that everybody sort of thrusted upon him as, like, the heir apparent to that top line spot or that second line spot? I have no idea why he's being treated the way he is in Chicago, but he's at least making a case for himself in the limited time he's seeing. I don't know if I would really bank on him seeing extended time in that top six anytime this season, the way things are going, and the Dano show might have to wait till next year, I'm starting to think, even in a situation where like they could have easily just plugged him in and left him there. But anyway, I'm keeping an eye on like the post-game analysis from last night, trying to see if the coach had a specific quarrel with anything Dano did. Yeah, yesterday I retweeted a tweet from a Chicago reporter, Tracy Myers, saying that Marco Dano was going to be on the top line. And then right away, we got some questions on Twitter. By the way, our Twitter account, at Keeping Carlson, you could ask us fantasy questions. And yeah, we got some questions. Like, should I drop this guy for Dano? Should I drop this guy for Dano? Someone was asking about Tyler Ennis as a potential drop. And I responded just saying like, Okay, just because he's going to be on the top line one game, you don't know. We have to watch and see for a couple of games. And I guess we saw from yesterday, on one hand, yeah, that assist, which is really exciting. If you just would have saw the news that Dano was going to be on the top line, and then this morning said, yeah, he got an assist, you'd be like, cool, everything is great. I should really pick that guy up. But those five minutes of ice time is something that you have to watch because he's not going to be able to get an assist every game in only five minutes of time on ice. Like you say, Brian will be interested to follow what's the reason for his low ice time and if he's going to still be able to get a chance on the top line maybe next game. Somebody else who hasn't quite been able to stick on that top line, Chicago, Tovo Teravainen. Just when it looked like he was about to stick on that top line with Tazen Hosa, he ended up playing significant time with Andrew Shaw and Marcus Kruger on the third line. And I say just when it looked like he was going to stick there because he's been doing very, very well lately. Two goals, three assists for five points in his last six games played. The red flag there, that was just three shots on goal in his last four games played. Maybe that's it. I have no idea what Chicago is doing with Taves and Hosa. I don't know if this is going to be rotating all year long. I hope not for the sake of our sanity. Uh, Okay, one last thing on Chicago since we're on them. I just want to get it straight right now because we keep getting questions on Facebook, on our Keeping Carlson patron Facebook group. People are asking, should I trade Artemi Panarin for this guy or for this guy? You know, people are thinking maybe they should sell high. And, you know, why not? He has 17 points now in 17 games. He's been a point-per-game player Until now, it's been insane. Him and Patrick Kane obviously have amazing chemistry. I've been strongly advocating for holding on to Panarin. At this point, I just want to know, Brian, let's get an update. What are your thoughts on what Panarin can achieve this season? Is he going to potentially be an 80-point player? The way he's playing... I'm confident that he's going to get a point every game. Like, I'm not saying I think he's going to get a point every game, but anytime like I have a game where I see that Chicago is playing, I'm always like, oh, great, Panera's probably going to get me at least a point. Yeah, that's how it feels. He's become one of those guys where if he's in your lineup, you feel confident that you are going to get a point or two that night. And no, I wouldn't sell high on him. I think I'd want to hang on to him. His on-ice shooting percentage is a touch high, so that might suggest that maybe he is collecting more points than he will continue to be able to pick up over the course of the season. But his own personal shooting percentage is just a smidge under 14%. All numbers, even strength, by the way, which is like sort of high. It's above NHL average, but it still could be where he slots in. Like it's not obscenely high. Like we think the five goals he scored have come in totally unreasonable pace relative to the amount of shots he's taken. So yeah, I'm not in the sell Panarin high camp. I'm on the ride it and enjoy it because you probably got him 
really, really cheap. And I would just sort of wait it out because I don't know how many other players I would want to trade him for right now. I'm not saying like he is a 70 plus point player for sure, but I definitely wouldn't want to trade him for anybody who is like projected to get 65 or fewer this season. But you know what, Brian, that actually does make it tough because there are some players who going into the season we would have thought were for sure 70 point or more players and so far just have not panned out that way. I'm talking about guys like Ryan Getzlav, Jacob Voracek, even bigger names like Steven Stamkos has only 14 points in 19 games, which is of course really good. He's actually currently riding a streak of seven points in his last seven games. Before that, Stamkos was slumping a little bit. So maybe he's not in that conversation. But guys like, yeah, Voracek and Getzlaff, I'm sure people listening are throwing out more names. Oh, Sidney Crosby is a name of a guy who hasn't been able to get it really going aside from a couple of games so far. I feel like we're going to start getting questions of should I trade Crosby or should I trade Voracek for Panarin? What are you going to tell to these people? I don't think I would do that. I think like you'd be buying or trying to buy Panarin's earlier production, which you can't do, right? It's like when a team signs a player and pays their salary in terms of what they've done in the past, not what they hope for in the future. You want to look from today forward when making a deal like that. And I would still take Voracek and Crosby and Stamkos ahead of Panarin in that sense. Like, it could be close. It could be closer than we would have ever imagined, but I would still put my money on the former group than Panarin. Yeah, it's tough. I guess it's actually tougher the other way. The people who have Panarin and are like, should I trade him for Voracek? It reminds me last year, we had a patron who had Vladimir Tarasenko, who had this amazing start. Actually, you know, Tarasenko last year kind of reminds me a bit of Panarin this year. Someone who we didn't expect to do that great. And at this point in the season, we're like, hmm, is this guy really for real? Is this guy really going to be a new elite player? And we'll see if Panarin pans out like Tarasenko did. But yeah, we had a patron who had Tarasenko and asked if he should trade him for Taylor Hall. He thought that would be a nice sell high. At the end of the year, Taylor Hall got injured, but even if he hadn't been injured, he didn't have the year that Tarasenko had. I wonder if at this point we get a question like, should I trade Panarin for Jacob Voracek? And then we say, yeah, for sure, he's Jacob Voracek. I wonder if at the end of the year that person would be really mad at us. Elon, that's a really good comparison, I think. And you know, you and I, or at least I especially, want a full good year before considering putting this guy beneath an established player who I know what I'm going to get from more often than not. And this could be that sort of situation. The question that we had in our Facebook group recently that was like a bit of a heated debate was Panarin or Oshie. Right, yeah. And you and I both said I'd rather Panarin. And there was one patron, Joe, was really funny and trying to argue why Oshie is more reliable. And that's a good point to be made. I mean, Oshie's had a 60-point season before. He's playing with Ovechkin. But at the end of the day, come on. No, I thought actually Joe had some really, really good arguments. And I think that they were all valid and he made either option seem defensible. Like he made the Oshi side look defensible to me for sure. I would still prefer Panarin myself. And the unfortunate thing is that it's just a little too early to know for sure. Like if you look, I'm just brought up the top points per 60 players amongst all fours who've played more than 200 minutes in the league this year at even strength. And that only counts about like 90, 100 forwards. Panarin is 13th on that list, but Joel Ward is fourth, followed by David DeHarnay and Thomas Fleischman. And you've got Dale Weiss down at 15th, just below Panarin. So like we still need things to even themselves out a little more. Maybe by the 25 game mark, we'll be able to make a rest of year call on Panarin. For now, I would just say hold. Hold unless you get somebody who has proven to be a point per game player over the last few years or like a 70, 75 plus point guy. Yeah, who Voracek does fall under that category. 
But okay, let's move on. We're still on outcheries. We're talking about Duncan Keith. Duncan Keith's good, by the way. But okay, other outcheries. How about Jacob Markstrom on Vancouver? He was out for the entirety of the season, finally came back to play on the 10th against Columbus, and he had a great game. He got the win, 42 saves, 933 save percentage. But then the Canucks went back with Ryan Miller for the next two games. And Miller, you know, didn't play that well, which makes me wonder if now's a good time to pick up Markstrom if you need an extra goalie. Elon, if you are in the market for a third goalie and Jacob Markstrom is on the market, if he's a free agent in your league, make that move today. Going into this year, we had Markstrom marked, no pun intended, but as a guy that could challenge for the number one job in Vancouver or at least create a tandem situation there. But Markstrom's preseason, of course, was derailed by injury and he didn't have the chance until this week to show what he could do this season. And now he's healthy. He's shone in that first start of the season, stopping 42 of 45 against Columbus. Like you mentioned, Elon, he picked up the win. Now, one start isn't enough to convince anybody that Markstrom deserves to start half his team's games for the rest of the season. But on the flip side, Ryan Miller's play should be enough to convince anyone that he might only deserve half of his team's start for the rest of the season. If you take a look at what Miller's done so far this year, you'll see that Miller has posted a save percentage below league average in 10 of his last 12 starts. That is, frankly, kind of pathetic. And critically, after Markstrom's gem of a game, Miller has had the net twice and posted an 880 and 900 save percentage, not just below league average, but way below league average. And for anybody saying, ah, it's just like a a bad run for him, It hasn't just been this year. In his last three years, Miller ranks 34th out of 39 regular NHL goalies in terms of even strength save percentage. He's also winless in his last five starts. The Canucks' only win in their last six games came with Markstrom behind the pipes. What's the one thing that Miller has going for him? Well, it's the fact that he signed a contract last year when Jim Benning had just arrived in Vancouver. It was one of Jim Benning's first moves, and the contract was for $6 million a year, and it goes all the way till the end of next year, which two Vancouver fans should feel like an eternity. If these were two guys, Miller and Markstrom, with no names on their backs, though, we'd definitely be rolling with Markstrom at this point. But knowing the Canucks, they will probably keep Miller and trade Markstrom to a random Eastern Conference team in the end. (laughs) So it sounds like you're saying that in a normal situation, it would be smart to pick up Markstrom because he might be the better goalie and should be getting more games, but you never know with the Canucks and you you don't want to bank too much on him because Ryan Miller might still be their guy. Yeah, ideally, you would have had Markstrom stashed already on your IR and like just waiting to make a roster move to bring him out, and you haven't done that yet, just until he does you know, seem to get a couple starts in a row. In fact, I was actually thinking of adding him not too long ago. I ended up stashing Laner instead on Buffalo, and then I was also looking at adding a goalie the other day, and I thought of adding Markstrom, but instead I went with James Reimer, who was outjuried like a few weeks ago or a couple weeks ago, but we didn't really talk about him because, well, Leafs goalie, who really cares? But Reimer has been fantastic for his team and for his fantasy owners this week especially. He has started four consecutive games and he has posted a save percentage at 935 or higher in each of those. He really seems to be thriving with the Leafs right now. And we've seen runs like this from him before. And the question now is, well, okay, Bernier is still in the picture. He's out juried now. When does he get the net back? And does he get it back for long? And the difference I've seen so far this year between Reimer and Bernier is that Bernier has actually had some games up in the same save percentage stratosphere as Reimer, like having some really great numbers. But the difference with Bernier is that 
He's fallen back to earth very quickly afterwards with real stinkers of a start and team deflating goals against as well. And we haven't yet seen that fall from Reimer. Mind you, I should mention, we were just talking about Ryan Miller and how he was 34 out of 39 goalies in even strength save percentage who have played regular time in the NHL over the last three years. Well, number 39 on that list is, as a matter of fact, James Reimer. So I'm not trying to talk out of both sides of my mouth. I just do like generally what's happening in Toronto. They seem to be doing the best they can with the personnel they have in terms of having a defensive system for like the first time in years. Reimer and Bernier both struggled a lot under the last regime, quote unquote, in Toronto. And anything can happen, I think, going forward between Reimer and Bernier. It seems like they are not settled on a number one goalie. A lot of us thought that it was going to be Bernier going into the season. Now, if I was a Bernier owner, I would actually be a lot more concerned than I was even two weeks ago with this fantastic play that we've seen from Reimer of late. Yeah, you'd think if a team is in a rebuild, that means they're not going to be super loyal to a specific goalie. Like if Reimer's doing well, why not go with him? They're trying to figure out what they need to do for their long-term future. Yeah, the rumbling is that they're going to want to trade one of them, and it's just a matter of figuring out which one. And I don't know if they'll keep the one they like more or if they'll trade the one that they think will get them the most value. That remains to be seen. Of course, either goalie would be more valuable for wins and possibly save percentage in another city, depending on what NHL city that is. But yeah, Bernier was like the last, again, quote-unquote, regime's guy. And now I think everything has been leveled. We're starting from zero between Bernier and Reimer again. And the outcome has yet to be determined, clearly. Yeah. So, you know, with goalies like these, like Markstrom and Reimer... They're probably in a lot of people's free agent lists, and they might be holding on to some goalies that they need to decide whether or not they should just drop them. And I have one in mind right now, Brian. Cam Talbot on Edmonton. What are people supposed to do about him? He's been awful, to put it lightly. In 12 games played, he has an 890 save percentage and only three wins for the Oilers. This as opposed to Anders Nilsson, who has taken a bunch of starts from him and has done, you know, a little bit better. 902 save percentage, also three wins. I guess neither goal. I guess Edmonton is just not going to make that step forward that we expected. And maybe that's just the bottom line here, especially now with McDavid out. But if you have Cam Talbot, and you see goalies like Reimer and Markstrom in free agency, do you make that change? Also, let's say if you have a Brian Elliott or a Jimmy Howard, you know, there's a lot of goalies who are frustrating their owners either due to poor play or just not getting the time because another goalie is stepping forward. Ooh, add Antti Niemi to that list. But okay, now I'm throwing too many names out there. I just wanted first your take on Cam Talbot. Is he worth holding on to? I'm going to go with yes. I know that's probably a really unpopular opinion, And it should be, because for all the reasons you mentioned, Elon, an 890 save percentage on the year. In fact, like, in his last five starts, something somewhat phenomenal has happened. In four of his last five starts, he has had exactly an 857 save percentage. No more, no less. And, like, it's phenomenal in an awful way, because that should not be happening for an NHL goaltender. But the fact that Nilsson has not fared much better, I mean... Okay, he's up by 12 save percentage points over the course of the season in four fewer appearances, but like he hasn't really blown the roof off at all himself. He had one good game against Pittsburgh, really, where he stopped 31 of 33. Then he had a couple decent games against Anaheim and Philadelphia as well. He's had more decent games than Talbot, but has he done enough to earn a number one role in the NHL? I don't think so. So in that sense, I think the job is still up for grabs. And I still think that Talbot has a shot at that. And, you know, we wrung our hands a lot at the start of the season about him and also Martin Jones because, well, here are some backups from really solid defensive teams who had some really great runs 
pretty much being thrown to the Lions in Talbot's case especially, and we want to see what we had from them. I think it's too early to say that Ken Talbot can't be a number one goalie in the NHL. And as painful as it might be, I might hold on to him a little bit longer if there aren't any obviously better situations. Reimer might be the one switch I might be willing to make, and that's only because I think Ken Talbot is probably as unattractive to the rest of your owners in your league as he is to you. And for anyone who thinks Anders Nielsen is really just going to take the starting job outright, I just want to point out, like, he is not, like, this up-and-coming new prospect or anything. He was drafted back in 2009. He's 25 years old, and he has played in the NHL for a little bit. He played with the New York Islanders in four appearances in 2011-2012. He had a 9-10 save percentage. Then he had 19 appearances in 2013-14 and posted an 8-96 percentage. Even his AHL save percentages have not been terribly impressive. The guy does not read as number one or even like a 1B NHL goaltender to me, which of course plays out in Talbot's favor. Yeah, so, okay, I see what you're saying that you think Talbot still might have the edge on Anders Nilsson to get more starts for the Oilers, but is this just going to become a situation like last year with Ben Scrivens and Victor Fast, where fine, maybe one is ahead of the other, but at the end of the day, it's an Oilers goalie who's going to blow up your save percentage and not give you much of a chance for wins? Like, is Cam Talbot actually worth holding on to if you're getting killed in save percentage and you have a guy like Reimer or Markstrom, you know, Andre Vasilevsky might be available in some leagues? I know you already said yes for Talbot, and now I'm just like hammering the point home, but I feel like you're re- reasoning was because you think he's still going to be the starting goalie but do you think it he's going to be able to actually provide value even if he does get starts at this point I don't feel comfortable saying that no I feel like his value to your team will be helping you reach your minimum starts or get games started or saves if you have those categories in your league otherwise he's not going to be of much service to you and if you're already going to get your minimum starts or you know you're not going to or you are going to win your saves category one way or the other I would feel okay dropping him for Reimer or even Markstrom. If Markstrom can get a start a week and post good numbers in it, I think that makes him more valuable than three crummy starts from Talbot where he posts an 8.57 in each of them. Yeah, and he probably won't get three starts a week because even though Nilsson's not great, I don't think that he's been that much worse. So it's it's a shaky situation. Please send us your Talbot or this guy questions because it's going to be an interesting week of trying to answer them, I have a feeling. I'll take Panarin over Talbot. I don't know. Joe might have something to say about that. (laughs) Okay, we still have a few more outros we wanted to mention. Maybe we should just call this the Outros Show, though there are still some other interesting things aside from them. How about let's talk about a one-day coming outro. Someone who has been injured all season... And some people may not even remember that he's in the league, but this is a guy who's going to be back at some point. He's been practicing with the team now, or at least joining the team for practice. I'm talking about Patrick Eliash on New Jersey. I'm not saying he's going to be a world beater like he once was, but here's my question to you, Brian. Next time I make a move in one of my leagues where I drop someone and pick someone else up, maybe should I first pick up Patrick Eliash and stash him in my IR so I'll have him available to me when he comes back? Or do you think he's not going to be an impactful player at all? It's not even worth having him as a stash and wasting the roster move. I'm not sure it's worth a roster move, to be blunt. In fact, like I kind of forgot that Eliash was still in the league. I was actually looking at Elias Lindholm's stats recently, and that was the reminder. It's like, oh yeah, Patrick Eliash, he, he hasn't retired yet. Wait, what does Elias Lindholm have to do? Oh, because they both have Elias, either as a first name or a last name? Yes, if you spell it, they're spelled the same. <laughs> okay, yes, I gotcha. Took me a second. <laughs> So now Eliash is 39 years old, coming off an injury. The last two seasons, he was pretty much a half-point-per-game guy, couple shots on goal per game. Eh, not really fantasy roster material. More like free agent fodder to me. I think the place where he might still have some value 
is as a really depth power play point getter for you. So you can bring him in as like a Zidlitsky sort of type, but at forward as a ringer who can pick up a couple special teams points here and there if you've got a really deep spot available on your roster. I also wonder, though, if his return can actually help the rest of the Devils and lend some sustainability to the recent scoring runs we've seen there. A deeper lineup is never a bad thing. I still think he's probably a good guy to have playing right now compared to the other depth options in New Jersey, though it does remain to be seen how effective he can really be at his age and coming off that injury. Yeah, well, when I look at the Devils roster and I look at their top six, you see Henrik Camilleri and Stempniak as the first line, and they've been doing great. Then you have Travis Zajac and Kyle Palmieri on the second line, and they both had those great runs. And then the left wing is Sergei Kalinin, who I'm going to admit, Brian, I don't know who that is. So is he someone that can stick in the top six, or does Elias have a chance to get in there with Zajac and Palmieri, which, you know, at least for this season, isn't that bad? Yeah, Kalinin was one of the more unheralded KHL imports this season. He played the last six seasons in the KHL, or sorry, he played one game six years ago. So he played most of the last five seasons in the KHL. Did all right with Omsk Avantgarde last year, putting up 25 points in 58 games. Those are not our Temi Panarin numbers, and I don't expect his play to really translate terribly strongly to the NHL. He has played 16 games already, so even though you might not know who he is, it's not like he hasn't been playing games. He has just four points in 16 games this year. So yeah, he's shown himself on the score sheet recently, but I don't think he's anybody I'm clamoring to get. Like, I don't think we should be taking deep dives with anybody on the Devils roster. Well, yeah, I wasn't asking saying that people should be picking up Sergei Kalinin just because he's on the second line on New Jersey, but I'm just saying that maybe there's a spot there for Patrick Elias to take and maybe still have somewhat of an impactful role, obviously only in a very deep league. But I guess only if you really can afford the acquisition, maybe you could just stash him. Just a just a thing that I'm suggesting, a low-risk move that you can make. Okay, one more outry that's upcoming that I'll just mention super quick. Alex Barkov is scheduled to be rejoining the Panthers soon, and I just think that's interesting because the Panthers' lines have been a bit in flux lately. Yarmer Yager was moved off the top line and has been playing with UC Jokin and Vincent Trocek on the second line. It's been Bjugstad, Huberdeau, and Riley Smith on that first even-strength unit. And maybe surprisingly, Brandon Peary, who had a nice start to the year and obviously that really strong stretch last year where he was scoring a goal in like every game, he's only been on the third line. So I think it's just interesting to follow the Panthers right now and I think that if you have any of these guys in your free agent list maybe a Brandon Peary I'd be interested to see what happens when Barkov comes back how the Lions shake out if it could get back to being Bjugstad, Peary and Riley Smith that's a pretty good line if they go back with Yager, Barkov and Huberdo as they were really clicking when Barkov was around and actually, speaking of Yarmir Yager, he came back from injury a couple of weeks ago. He missed only a couple of games, and he had a really cold stretch. In three games, he did nothing. Then he had two games in a row where he had a goal and assist, and then an assist, so it seemed like he was back to normal. Then yesterday against Tampa Bay, no points, no shots. So, you know, Yager in total has 13 points in 15 games. Now, he was a point-per-game player before he got injured. Doesn't look like he's going to be that guy for the rest of the season. Hopefully, he could be like a 60-65 point guy, but I wouldn't expect more than that. That's fair. We can't really speculate, though, at this point, what the lines are going to look like. I feel like Florida, though, could use some stability. We see guys like Brandon Peary, who have kind of, I don't know, not been left out in the cold, but not really been able to thrive. And I wonder if if that is a function of there being not the depth that was hoped for in that Florida top six. One guy who might be in trouble that I want to point out, and might have been added on several fantasy rosters, once Barkov comes back, is Vincent Trocek. 
He's up to 13 points in 17 games, and he has really made the most of the increased time and role he's been seeing. He's got four points in his last five games. Before that, he had a three-point game as well, and he's putting several shots on goal. So he's actually like a good depth add for now, but his scoring is unsustainable in itself. And on top of that, I imagine that there will be less time for him to play center inside the top six once the Panthers have a fully healthy lineup again. Okay, and let's transition now from outjuries to injuries. It's a sad part of the game, but we have to get to it. And there's a couple of interesting ones here. Let's start with Semyon Varlamov, who's again having groin issues day-to-day right now. The worst thing, right? When your goalie is day-to-day, so you can't even put him on your IR if you don't have an IR plus spot, and he just, like, holds a goalie spot for you. You can't drop him because he's Semyon Varlamov, and, you know, he's... Not the kind of goalie that you could drop, though I am seeing that his percentage ownership has been dropping in ESPN, a perennial 100% guy, at least for the past couple of years. He's now at 89.9%, and I assume falling. Hopefully, he'll be back soon. Though, you know, for the Avalanche, it's not been a big deal for Varlamov to be injured, because Varlamov has been having a pretty brutal season overall, an 890 save percentage in 10 games played and only three wins. And Red Obera, who I remember last year was always so horrible when he played. It was like, for sure, Varlamov was going to get lots of starts, because Obera was just like the worst. First, this year he's been the opposite, the best. He's played the Avalanche's last four games and has had a 939, 926, 975, and 1000 save percentage. He had a shutout against Philadelphia. He's been fantastic. He's won three of those four games. And for Colorado, that's a pretty big deal because they weren't able to win three games in a row while Varlamov was in Nets earlier this year. So Barra has been fantastic. Brian, I guess he's another guy we could add to the list of goalies when you have Cam Talbot stinking it up for you every night and you see Red O'Bara available in free agency. I don't know, his ownership is rising. He might not be available for you anymore. But do you think that Red O'Bara will keep this up? And like when Varlamov comes back, are they going to maybe have a timeshare since Barra's been so good? I'm curious to know what your thoughts are on this Colorado goalie situation right now, which is quickly becoming a goalie controversy. No, I don't see a goalie controversy here at all. Red O'Bara is not very good. Like, he's just not a very good NHL goalie. There's a reason that he has a 909 save percentage over the course of his career. He's only appeared in 58 games in four years of pro hockey in North America. And I feel like it's just not in the cards for him to be even like an NHL backup. Like when I think of him, I think of a guy like Kerry Ramo, who seems to be getting opportunities, maybe a few more than he deserves, but has not been able to do much with them. Yes, this year he has been fantastic. But like, I think talking about him over Varlamov is just, that's crazy talk. Varlamov is the guy in Colorado. He will continue to be the guy in Colorado. If you're looking for like a short-term goalie stream option and you know you can put Varlamov on day-to-day or IR plus or whatever then sure go ahead and go for it but it's not like Colorado is a very sound defensive team either I would add him only if I was really looking for goalie starts or needed a spot start here and there somebody in my cupful league actually put like a $22 bid on him which is 22% of their total free agent acquisition budget which I thought was an interesting move and it actually paid off because Barrett helped that guy beat me in the cup full this week, actually trounced me in the cup full this week. So good job, Colton, for making me feel awful. But I don't expect it to last for you, Colton. So will I have the last laugh on that one? Because you dropped a rhymer to get him. Yeah, I guess that's an interesting comparison, Barra and Reimer, both of them really doing well lately. And people are now wondering what they should do with them. If they have them, how long should they hold them? I don't know, Brian. Like, I guess I'm just looking at the very 
recent past and seeing that Bears had these amazing four last games, including, you know, uh, one goal against game yesterday against Montreal and the win, 39 saves, a crazy win for Colorado over Montreal. We were telling people in the Facebook group that they should play Condon tonight. That was a mistake. Someone was asking Condon or Rask and I suggested Condon. I think you suggested Rask, so good on you. Guys, always listen to Brian if he disagrees with me, by the way. But I don't know if you should listen to Brian about this. No, but you probably should. But Red O'Bara, he's doing well now. I'm actually surprised that Calvin Pickard hasn't gotten a chance to play because with Varlamov injured last year, Pickard was the one who came in and played all the games. Like, Barra didn't see a game because Pickard was so amazing. And I remember when Varlamov got injured a second time last year, it was almost exciting. Like, oh, time to grab Pickard and get some amazing save percentages. But I don't know, with Barra playing the way he is, maybe Pickard is just going to sit on the bench until Varlamov comes back. I also immediately thought, why isn't Pickard up there? He had a fantastic, you know, spell in the NHL last year. And for the San Antonio Rampage this year in the AHL, he has a 935 save percentage. The difference between him and Barra, though, is that Barra is, for some reason, on a one-way deal. So if they want to bench Barra and call out Pickard, they'll be wasting a roster spot. And if they want to send down Barra, they risk losing him to waivers. I don't know what NHL team would want him right now. <laughs> oh, man. Brian, you're you're going too harsh. I don't know. I Red just, what team's going to want him right now? I'll bet you the Edmonton Oilers would want him okay. right now. I wonder if he's going to be your Andrew Hammond this year. No, if nobody wants <laughs> Kari Ramo, why would anyone want Red O'Bara? Because Red O'Bara is having an amazing season, while Kari Ramo isn't. Red O'Bara is having an amazing like seven games, and Kari Ramo had a pretty decent like few games earlier on this season, and for parts of last season too. I don't know. I don't buy that argument that Red O'Bara is having a pretty good season. <laughs> well, Kari Ramo has an 894 save percentage <laughs> in 10 games, and Red O'Bara has a 953 save percentage in 8 games. So, anyway, just to say, I just I, I, I see what you're saying. I don't disagree that Red O'Bara probably won't hold on to the job, but to say that he'll for sure clear waivers because if people didn't want Kari Ramo, why would they want Red O'Bara? Like, I don't know. People will give him a shot if he's on fire right now. Isn't a lot of goaltending? I'd actually be curious to get your thoughts on this in general. Like, I imagine it's a mind game. Like, I've never played NHL hockey. I've never been a goaltender. I'd imagine if you're in the zone, is there such a thing? Like, you're in the zone? Like, Barra seems like he's in the zone. Yeah, you know what? I, I, I'm thinking it through everything that you're saying, and I think they should probably trade Barra to Boston, sell high on him to get Tuka Rask, who's having a pretty bad season, just an 896 <laughs> save percentage right now. All right. You should ask your brother. Doesn't want your brother a goalie? All right, Brian. No, I'm serious about the zone thing. Okay, I'll ask him. My brother's a goalie in like some wreck Jewish league. <laughs> <laughs> Text him right now. Ask him if he's in the zone. He's probably sleeping. Wake him up. This is important. <laughs> Let's go to the next injury here. Mark Strait. This one hurts, by the way. Mark Strait has the extreme groin issue, and this is not a funny matter. He apparently has to have surgery to repair a pubic plate detachment. I'm not going to Google what that means, because that just sounds brutal. But Mark Strait is the top defenseman on what should be a very potent power play. So this is a significant injury worth looking into because someone is going to have to take his role there. I'd imagine it would be Michael Delzato, though I'd be imagining incorrectly if I was to look at what happened in the Flyers game yesterday because they called up Shane Gostebher. Oh my god, I probably really butchered that name. But it was Gostebher who was playing on that top power play unit with Voracek, Giroux, Wayne Simmons and Michael Roffel. Remember that guy? 
So, Brian, two questions here. First of all, I'd imagine you're going to say that Michael Delzato is a snoozer right now. If people are holding on to him, we were high on him going into the season because he had a really nice run last year. We thought he'd be the second guy behind Mark Streit. He only has two assists now. He got an assist yesterday, to be fair, not on the power play. But yeah, only two assists on the year. And then also, I guess the bigger question then is if you're dropping Michael Delzato, you've probably already dropped him a long time ago. What are we to say about Shane Ghostapair, aside from how to pronounce his name? Well, he did just play his third career NHL game and he picked up his first NHL point 